Schaefer, thank you so much for being on the program. Um, Schaefer with one F. I have uh, my brother-in-law is Schaefer with one F. I wonder if you are, are all related because I used to think that was the strangest spelling. Wow. There's many spellings. I'm always <laughs> impressed when people spell it right uh, at first attempt. Yeah, well, I interviewed my brother-in-law because he's a yogi and he's going to be on the program as well. Um, probably his episode will be before this one because I interviewed him the other week. And so when they see there's two different Schaefers, as far as we know, there's no relation. Yeah. <laughs> so the reason I reached out to you is because of, obviously, um, related to our mission, um, I have a strong interest in EMDR, as well as any kind of therapeutic modalities that are maybe a little bit newer and promising for people in the trauma space. So I sent you kind of a, a little bit of a heads up of what kind of might pique my interest, but I'm also curious to obviously get a proper introduction of yourself if you want to go through your CV a little bit and give people an idea of who you are, um, then we can maybe get into what brought you to this specialty as well. Okay, well, uh, I started out in the chemical dependency field, so I have a strong background with addiction, and for many years I did a lot of uh, teaching and um, presenting papers and doing research in that area and also seeing clients. It was a specialization area. And then, as you know, with any kind of uh, obsessive behavior, or with any kind of addiction, uh, there is a strong correlation with trauma backgrounds. And so that naturally led me into pursuing more information about how to best treat trauma. And so actually about 25 years ago, I heard that the VA in Minneapolis was offering a new training and it was called EMDR therapy. EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization Reprocessing. And um, They haven't thought about giving that a better name yet, have they? <laughs> well, there is a better name, but, but, but they can't do it because all of their publications, all of their... Oh, no. Yeah, it would cost way the too much money. The rebranding budget is blown out. We yeah, can't do it. yeah. Oh, I think, I think it's just, you know, it's known worldwide, so it would be quite a shift. Uh, but at any rate, I was the kind of person that once I got my final degree, I had had enough time sitting in classrooms, so I was kind of the last person on the block to want to go get more training and sit, you know, go yeah. someplace. But I heard about this training at the local VA, and I thought, this sounds really different. And I also thought, you know, the VA is is very conservative. And hmm. so it's probably not just woo-woo medicine that I'm going to hear about if it's at the VA. And so out of my partnership here, of which there were three of us, 
I decided to go to the, f the workshop, and I believe it was the first EMDR training in the Twin Cities area, and this was, like I said, about 25 years ago. And so I went to the training, and just with an open mind, and I realized that not only was it as good as they said it would be, it was actually better. And so I came back, and I was really jazzed, enthusiastic, and before too long, my, both of my business partners got trained in it as well. Wow. So when you say better than you thought it would be, what was your expectation? Well, let me back up. Let's give the people, including myself, a sense of history and context. Um, if I had walked into a private practice such as this before EMDR, um, what would have been the primary intervention to try to help me? Cognitive talk therapy or, or combining that with medication or, or what would it be? If well, I had like a trauma problem. You know, before and even now, even though I have this specialization in EMDR therapy, it's always multimodal. Mm. It's, it's like, even though I am known for this specialization, I get a lot of referrals by other therapists who f find their clients are stuck in a particular area and they want me to just do the EMDR piece of the work. It's always multifaceted. It's multimodal because people are also different and people are complicated. And so even though this is one therapeutic strategy, I've always used many different strategies in my work. Some t more traditional, some mm -hmm. less. So anyone who says, well, they're an EMDR specialist, it means they've had the training. It doesn't mean that's going to be alpha omega, the only things that they Right. I don't, the I don't you know, I think there's many paths to healing. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I like to say in my trainings, I'm enthusiastic about EMDR, but sure. I'm not messianic about EMDR therapy. Oh, I like that distinction. I mean, the last thing you want to do, obviously, we want to be upbeat and say, listen, people listening out there, uh, loved ones of people with PTSD and eating disorders, you know, don't give up if you feel like you've been through the revolving door of treatment, different therapists and whatever. We want to expose you to as many tools in the kit as possible. But we also don't want to paint a false hope that six months later, you, you won't feel like you have P PTSD anymore. You know, it really it depends on the level of post-traumatic stress disorder, and it depends on the number of years in that place. So, for example, the research tells us with a single incident traumatic experience, and that could be a little kid being bitten by a dog where they're freaked out every time they see a dog, or it could be somebody who was held up at knife point on a, a vacation. It could be somebody who was in a car crash and can't get in their car. These are examples of single incident traumas. And the research tells us that with EMDR therapy, one to three EMDR processing sessions is what is expected to take care of that. Now, those are single incident traumas. Once you get to more complicated issues, it takes longer. Mm. So the research on combat vets, for example, shows that after 10 EMDR sessions, 77% of the post-traumatic stress symptoms are gone, and even in a three-month follow-up of that, that remains the case. So there can be a lot that can take place in a relatively short period of time with certain kinds of clients. The exception being, of which many of clients fall into this uh, niche, are clients who have grown up with early childhood trauma. And so I'm talking about not just abuse, I'm talking about childhood neglect. I'm talking about, if not physical abuse or sexual abuse, things like verbal abuse, emotional abuse, all of this. Over a period of time, those are the clients that take a good long time with or without EMDR therapy. Sometimes clients can take 
uh, up to years to just do stabilization and resourcing with them before they're even eligible or ready to do EMDR therapy so that it doesn't worsen the situation. Can so, you walk me through what that means before we go any further? You said stabilization resourcing. That's stabilization uh, is, we, we talk about the window of tolerance. We all operate in life with a window of tolerance, meaning we all have ups and downs. We can handle those, we can ride those waves, and it doesn't affect in primary ways our functioning in the key areas of our life. When we experience significant trauma, where there's, especially where there's PTSD involved, we go outside the window of tolerance, and for some people that means they go beneath the window of tolerance, and that's where you see things like uh, vegetative depression, or it can be, not all vegetative depression is that, but you certainly can see that. You can see people are numbed out. Um, and if you go on the upper end of the window of tolerance, then you can see people who are highly anxious and they're gripped by their anxieties to such a degree that they can't focus even. So it's like you're almost measuring activity level, even though it activation can be level, yes, activation level, sure. And then, as you know, along with that, can they function in society, right? Right. So you can see people who have a baseline anxiety too high to function, and then you can also picture those people who just can't feel anything anymore, like you just said. And and you talked about eating disorders, yeah. and earlier, uh, as we were talking, even before this tape began, and. Uh, people who eat in an obsessive way oftentimes do so to create that numbing to tolerate the trauma that they've experienced. So for example, if you look at studies, I'm just going to quote one of them with eating disorders, is that 63.3% of persons with anorexia in this study had a trauma background and 57.7% and, uh, of the people who had bulimia had trauma in their background. So there's a very high correlation. People eat for all sorts of reasons when they eat obsessively. One of the reasons is to numb out. And, and I'm sure you've heard that from people you've talked mm -hmm. to. And reasons to not eat. You know, I've heard that on both ends of the spectrum. Yeah. The reason to not eat is it's one way a person can maintain control in their life. Even if it's at a cost to them, if they've lived with somebody who's been controlling them, it is one way that they can say, you're not going to control this with me. Hmm. I've heard that so many times from so many people, whether they're struggling themselves or people in your position. Um, and yet with food being such a primary, natural, regular part of everyone's life that we need to you know, have the energy to do the things we want to as individuals in the world, I, I just, I'm still trying to understand how it gets so disrupted for so long. You know, some of these people out there are battling decades later. And if when you peel back the layers, it's something that happened during their formative years. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to sit here and say, listen, if something happened to you before you were 10, you're basically not going to get better. But it is so much harder, isn't it? Especially before age eight. It, it's just like based on brain development. Uh, before the age of eight, that's when you see if a person has experienced severe trauma, that's where dissociation begins to form. Really? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think that the earlier and the more um, experiences or times or length of time the trauma occurs all factor into the healing process. So when you talk about stabilization resources, I think we jumped around a little bit. Um, what are some examples of that and what do people need 
to know, to even maybe screen or evaluate whether EMDR might be right for them? Well, you, you lead to a very critical point in the assessment of, a, of, of somebody coming through the door to determine whether or not they're a good candidate for EMDR therapy. One of the things they have to demonstrate is that they can do what's called state change. And how we test for that is we have people imagine a safe, calm place. And we light it up in their brain. And how we light it up in their brain is we ask them about the visual part of it, the olfactory part of it, the kinesthetic part of it, the emotional part of it. And by doing that, we're lighting up all the different components in the brain. And then we incorporate, we can incorporate slow bilaterals, because bilaterals, it's like hitting the save button on the computer. It solidifies that response. And then we have them think about a minor annoyance so that here they are in their calm, relaxing place, and we have them imagine a minor annoyance because as they do, their state will change. Hmm. And then we have them come back to whatever keyword or cue word they would have used to describe their safe place. Maybe it's the word joy, maybe it's the word relaxation. And once they bring up that cue word again, if they go back to that earlier state of relaxation, we know that they can state change. And then that's one of the components that we assess for before starting EMDR therapy. The other thing we assess for is one's ability to dissociate. So based on the level of trauma, based on the age in which trauma occurred, people have varying abilities of dissociating. And we talk about dissociation as an ability, as a strategy. It's something we have inherent in our brain, the capacity for that. Much like our body has the capacity to go into physical shock when it's in too severe a pain, our mind has the same capacity. And dissociation could be a good example of that. So we assess for that because based on how readily a person dissociates, that's the degree to which we have to take time to do stabilization exercises, what we also call resourcing exercises. These are all sorts of strategies for calming the brain. Mm -hmm. And then we have people practice those when they're away from their sessions because as they practice them, they begin to own that and it takes less time to get into that state. And mm -hmm. I, I think about this. Myself, I uh, took up transcendental meditation at one point in my life. At age 21, I was at high risk for stroke and heart attack. And rather than do medication, I did meditation. And so at first, it would take me, you know, you do the 20 minutes twice a day, and, and I would practice, practice, practice. Well, after a while, I could get into that alpha state so much quicker. And so it was the practice of meditation that allowed me to get to that calmer brain state. Alpha, did you say? As alpha state. Alpha waves? Yeah, well, alpha waves, And that's the yes. sense of your well-being, correct? Alpha uh, waves are associated with acuity, meaning mental sharpness, but also relaxation. So it's kind of a perfect state. Sure. You're mentally sharp. You're not, you're not you know, so mellow out that you're not thinking straight, but you're calm. Get the music behind the mission. Hate Becoming by Kelly Nicole on iTunes and Spotify. If you guys haven't checked out the merch table, join the movement. Buy the album. Get your Kelly Nicole band merch and donate what you can at kellynicolefoundation.org. Courage is strong. Amplified!